0: Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Saturday, March 26th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad and I'm here with Chris. Hey, Dad, how's it going? It's a lovely day. It is. And it's especially lovely because we have a huge announcement. The Bitcoin Dad has finally figured out how to use Podcasting 2.0 technology. Oh, yeah. Nice. Congratulations. Our amazing audience has already started boosting us. Ah. So for those who don't remember, or found it confusing, what's going on here is that the Bitcoin network is kind of like central banks interacting with central banks. Slow, secure, final transactions, which is great for sending lots of money. But maybe you want to send a little money. And so on top of Bitcoin is built the Lightning Network. Layer two, if you will,
1: which we talked a little bit last week, but is essentially a peer-to-peer channel system that allows people to send small amounts of Bitcoin or large amounts of Bitcoin above the Bitcoin network, and then the final ends of the transaction finalize on the blockchain.
0: Lightning is kind of like Visa, except it's better than Visa because there's no chargebacks. And because Bitcoin is digital and can be divided almost infinitely, you can send one penny with a transaction. And Podcasting 2.0 allows you to send... A little bit of money along with a message to the show or just money.
1: Yeah. And, you know, as somebody who's done this for 15 years, I find that the boost messages are some of the best messages because they're short and because there is a very small monetary cost. Someone thinks just a moment about the message before they send it. And they're generally coming from a very caring place because they're invested in the show. It's a perfect, like, you know, mix of all of it messages, value and of course it gives the opportunity for the audience to have a little buy in and support the show.
0: And the economist in me agrees with all of that because when we attach monetary value to things, we think about them differently. This system is not possible to spam, really, because you have to spend money. So you tend to get nice little messages.
1: And you know, it might seem at first to somebody who's really just new to bitcoin it might seem odd like why would i send why would i send dad 5 Dollars worth of Bitcoin when in 25 years that might be worth $200 or something, right? I mean, these numbers are all just who knows, could be worth nothing too. And you might think, why would I do that? Why would I want to, why would I want to give something like that away when I could just sit on that and get rich? In reality, it's, you know, what, $5? How much is that really going to be worth? But it means that you can send a little bit of value into the podcast today that costs you a penny, costs you two bucks, costs you five bucks, whatever it might be. And as a production, the podcast can choose to either convert that to fiat today to cover you know, podcast expenses, or the production could choose to sit on that for five years. And that means your contribution today that you may have spent $5 on could continue to drive value to the production for the long term. So maybe in five to 10 years, your $5 is now worth $25, 30 $100, and you never had to contribute another penny necessarily. And it's just your money keeps working for you. So that is the, that's the wonderful thing about Bitcoin is that it works for you. It continues to work for you. It continues to grow value. So your $5 contribution, which might be today, maybe in, you know, 2031 is a $100 contribution or a $30 contribution, and you didn't have to do anything. It just kept working for you. And that, I think, is going to change content creation because it's going to make content creators think long term. Think about what does it take to cultivate a loyal audience long term? and the answer to that is make really great content that people are interested in and that is valuable, that doesn't try to scam
0: people and that's just a win-win for everybody totally. I was thinking about this because I happened to have a conversation with someone who works in ad tech, and I said to her, "You know I've never actually clicked on an online ad, and I use the internet a lot so I don't think I'm weird, but I just feel like all this Google advertising is probably worthless because I've literally never used it. And I know other people who haven't as well.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I don't even see them. You know, just being on the internet for as long as I have, I just tune it out.
0: And the ads that I have clicked on have been ads on podcasts. Thank you, sir. Like Chris's, which are there's no automation, there's no technological magic to serve me that ad. There's just people like Chris thinking long and hard about what the audience would like to hear about.
1: Yeah. Use a thing, find a thing that's something the audience would respond well to, and then endorse that thing. And that's a slow process, right? So the overhead for the production is enormous. And it makes it actually a smaller list than you'd think of companies that you'd really want to work with. That's where value for value, I think, is extremely awesome. And the boosts are a way to
0: give value and send a message. And also to learn how to use Bitcoin and Lightning. And at the end of the day, it only costs you five bucks. You can send whatever you want. Whatever. You can send 25 cents into the show and you can just buy 25 cents of Bitcoin that day.
1: Clearly, the reasonable
0: thing to do would be to send like $100,000, though. I mean, obviously, right? If someone boosts us $100,000, well, frankly, we won't be able to accept it because our Lightning channel isn't wide enough. But if someone (laughs) (laughs) wants to boost us $100,000, we could do that on-chain, and we will keep the podcast going for the next 50 years. Yeah, sure. Maybe what they should do first
1: is they should invest it in a quote-unquote savings account on Anchor. Get that sweet
0: 20% APY wallet. Oh, (laughs) Hold on. Hold on. We have to read the boost first (laughs) before we start— all right, poking at that the that may DeFi be that ecos. may be a hint of what we're going to talk about in a bit. So we got an awesome boost four days ago from a, an anonymous listener who who mentioned that Blue Wallet works great with a remote node over Tor, and you can also use a cold card. That's a wallet we haven't talked about on our podcast before. I mean, it got like a brief mention, but not the airtime it deserves for how cool it is. I have a friend who uses Blue Wallet, so I'm going to check out Blue Wallet this week and report back and try to connect it to a cold card. And then I'll share that learning with you all. You might also play around with connecting that Blue Wallet to your Umbral instance. There is a, there is a pathway for that, so you can, you can use your Umbral node. Oh, that's great. And I'm actually receiving these boosts via the Helipad app produced by Dave Jones. On the Umbril node that Chris inspired me to spin up. And our next boost is actually from Dave Jones, who says, Love the show, guys. Any chance there will be chapters in the future? Well, <laughs> well, Dave, you sent us 50 cents worth of Bitcoin. So I guess we'll have to make chapters forevermore.
1: Yeah, that totally seems worth it. You see, Dave got in. He's an early investor in the show. So he gets a lot of
0: value for that. <laughs> right. And then our last boost is from Purple Bear via the Breeze app, who just says, hey, Dad. Okay, thanks, Purple Bear. Hey, hey, Purple Bear.
1: Hey, Purple Bear. I'm here, too, but that's fine.
0: I understand. People often send in boosts to my shows, and they just say, hey, Chris. <laughs> Maybe someone can give Chris a hey. Yeah. That would make him very happy. I mean, totally happy.
1: You know what? Because then I could turn around and invest that in some uh, Luna, and then I could uh, get some sweet APY on Anchor.
0: Right? (laughs) Right. So you could tell I'm teasing dad today. I just feel feisty. We received some feedback that some listeners would like us to tell you what we're going to talk about and then talk about it and then tell you again what we talked about, more structure. So essentially today, we're going to discuss some news about DeFi because DeFi is in the news and interesting. I'm not saying it's legitimate, I'm just saying it's interesting. And then we're going to discuss just a touch, a touch. Of geopolitics, because all that stuff about Bitcoin becoming the world's energy currency, well, it was supposed to happen in three years, but people are talking about it like it's going to happen in a month. We better just touch on it. Maybe an update. And then we're also going to discuss some pretty bad news about data leaks and self custody security. We don't want to scare our listeners. At the same time, we want everyone to be safe. So we're going to discuss some leaks that happened and ways to protect yourself. And we're also going to recommend a really cool tool that you might not have heard about. That will all be coming later. Hmm. And rumor has it maybe even a little bit of feedback in there, too. There might be more feedback that
1: wasn't boosted. You know, I you mentioned DeFi in there, which I think is where we're going to start today. Is it
0: worth explaining what DeFi is as a concept? I think that's a good idea. DeFi is a term that's been thrown around, I would say, since 2019, early, late 2019, early 2020. Mm-hmm. And the concept is that DeFi is some sort of program system on an open blockchain, usually a smart contract, and it enables you to do things that financial companies, banks, brokers used to do, but in an unpermissioned way.
1: Yeah, the D stands for decentralized, so
0: decentralized finance is sort of what the DeFi is. And it's supposed to democratize finance, and in principle, or in theory, it seems like a really great idea. Unfortunately, it's sort of complicated, and generally it's not that decentralized, and I think that most DeFi is, frankly, VC-backed startups creating nonsense products that are good for traders and insiders, but if you try to make money on this as a little retail guppy, you're going to get eaten by a big VC shark. That's my two cents.
1: Yeah, a lot of these platforms have a token, they have a blockchain, they have a currency, they have currency derivatives, and it can get pretty complicated pretty fast. And in there lies where the money is. <laughs> in that complication, in right. the backing of that uh, token in that
0: blockchain is where the VCs get involved. And so the DeFi ecosystem we're going to talk about today is called Terra Luna, and it's an algorithmic stablecoin with an altcoin attached to it. Yeah, it's two parts, really. It's the Luna part and the UST part. Right. So I guess Terra is their U.S. dollar stablecoin, and somehow you take their altcoin Luna and you you burn it to buy Terra? Mm -hmm. How does this work?
1: Yeah, so the idea is that for every UST that is claimed, so for every U.S. dollar stablecoin that is claimed, it is backed by Luna— And so Luna is either burned or created to maintain a certain stability in the value of UST. So if somebody were to, say, go buy up a million dollars worth of UST, a bunch of Luna would get automatically burned by the algorithm. Now, the theory is that if you're a Luna holder, that just made your Luna holdings more valuable because now there's less Luna in
0: circulation. So you can see that this whole system requires Luna to have some value. So how... Does this system create value for Luna? And by the way, this is not advice to go and get involved in this. We're just describing how this thing is supposed to work, ideally.
1: Generally, you know, one of the ways you could create value out of Luna is by creating demand for it. Maybe you're buying goods with it, or maybe there is a way you could invest it, quote-unquote, and make returns on it. So some way to create value, to create demand for Luna is necessary.
0: Because... UST, Terra, its value as a US dollar coin, one USD should always be equal to one US dollar. Because this system is built on top of Luna, Luna must have value. And so there must be something useful you can do with it. If you follow these kinds of
1: things, Luna has shot up the value chart, like on coin market cap, compared to all other currencies. It's uh, the ninth overall cryptocurrency,
0: and a one Luna is currently worth $90, almost $91. Based on our research, the way that this whole ecosystem has incentivized people to hold Luna is that there is a DeFi protocol called Anchor. And if you put Luna in, you can receive 20% APY on Luna.
1: Yeah. Now think about this from the perspective of Someone who considers himself a crypto trader and
0: they're trading cryptocurrency on, on the daily to make money. They're, they're buying low and selling high. Hold on. Are you earning 20% on Luna, the altcoin, or 20% on Terra, the dollar coin?
1: I believe you can actually do both. I think you can do both. So you can stake Luna as well as you can get a uh, APY or you can hold uh, UST. And it's not only uh, on Anchor, although Anchor has the best returns. But every platform that offers you some sort of API, like your BlockFi's and your Celsius, they all have very aggressive returns on UST. So you can either use UST or Luna. Luna, I think, is the big one on Anchor. The idea being that you hold it there during a down market, right? So you cash out of your Bitcoin or you cash out of your Ethereum or your Doge or whatever it is during a market crash. And so maybe, maybe you cash out of Bitcoin when it was at $55,000. You transferred all of that into UST. You hold it there and then you move it over to anchor
0: and you make a 20% interest while the market's down and you feel like a huge super genius. You would be a super genius if you could sell a top and then earn 20% while the market goes down the toilet and then buy in again at that bottom. Wow. You'd be Ray Dalio times 100.
1: Yeah. If you could if you could manage to move everything at the right time and and nail it, I suppose so. But I think people think they are that person <laughs> and so they're giving it a go. And so this, this 20% APY is what's really created a lot of demand for Luna right now. And there are a couple of exchanges like Bitnex and Coinbase that will actually let you buy Bitcoin with UST. So you've got some demand on both sides. But for the most part, it's just people, I think, trying
0: to make 20% APY. Obviously, this is too good to be true. So what is the problem? And I will tell you that I think the problem is that if the price of Luna collapses, then Terra, the U.S. dollar stablecoin, destabilizes and is not worth one-to-one with the U.S. dollar. Basically, the Anchor protocol can offer these very high APYs because it's being subsidized. So some investor is pouring money into this pool to encourage people to use Luna, which is clearly not sustainable.
1: Yeah, they've uh, even kind of said publicly this is their strategy is to essentially use Anchor as a way to drive demand for the ecosystem. So they see it as strategically valuable to subsidize Anchor for a while to try to convince people to go all in with, I suppose, the hope being that by the, by the time Anchor dries up, the network effect is such that people just switch over from Tether or uh, USDC and just start using UST.
0: And I would say that this is a terrible strategy because if we look through the short history of DeFi, the way that DeFi protocols work is that they initially offer a high APY. Everyone piles in. It's not sustainable. They suppress yields. And then they all leave and go to the next protocol that promises high APYs. And the first one collapses. So there's never been a DeFi protocol that sort of created brand loyalty.
1: Yeah, I suppose the problem they're always going to face is that it's very low friction for users to switch between them. So it doesn't take you know going into a bank and talking to a teller To transfer it to a new account, you just sit down at an exchange or a swap and swap
0: into the new one. And you can do this from your cell phone on your couch or at your laptop, wherever you're sitting. So it's pretty low friction. And let's be honest, most of the people, most of the money, so there are probably many participants, but I would say the majority of the money in these protocols, this is this is professional money. This is not people like you and me trading a little bit on the weekend. These are hedge funds who are in here to get yield and they have the money to contact the developers and understand very intimately how this system works in a way that it's not very easy for us to do.
1: Yeah. The hope by some in the community is that this could be the chosen stablecoin, UST, by the community. Like, I think there's some that really recognize for at least a couple of decades, we're going to need some sort of transitionary stablecoin. This should be it because it's essentially decentralized. Now, some of the creators have claimed I don't know if this is true, but they have claimed that they could essentially blow away their structure and the algorithm could continue to function and that Luna could continue to be burned and created to back UST infinitely. And that if, if the regula- regulatory bodies ever came after some of the developers, this could continue to exist. And that's sort of their long-term value proposition, you know, is that USDC eventually will be captured, Tether is captured already by the, by, by the state. This is the one
0: stable coin that can't be captured. And I would respond and say that this is very inspiring and completely unrealistic because even if your algorithmic system, which controls this exchange between Terra and Luna, is functioning, you cannot control the number of US dollars in the world. That is controlled by the US Treasury, the US Congress, the US Federal Reserve, and the way that these dollars interact with the banking system to create more dollars. Even if this system works perfectly, the thing you're pegging it to is not stable. So it's inherently unstable.
1: This uncertainty and these questions that you're raising are probably why the project has recently committed to buying nearly a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin to act as some kind of reserve currency.
0: Right. And if we think about this logically, if the value proposition of your stablecoin is that it is algorithmically backed and then you go ahead and you buy a billion dollars of Bitcoin, basically means that you just said you do not trust the algorithmic backing of your stablecoin.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's how I interpret it. Their response to that is we're doing this just to give people peace of mind because so many of you doubt this is possible. So now for the naysayers, we've also backed it with Bitcoin.
0: Wow. Can we elect this, this person president? Because they just spent a billion dollars for my peace of mind. What a charitable person. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, sure. Charitable, charitable is exactly their primary motive.
0: <laughs> and the other thing is that it's completely illogical to purchase Bitcoin to back a U.S. dollar stablecoin. Bitcoin is not dollars. If you want to create st- stability, you need to back it in the same asset that it's representing. And that's why Tether works. Because even though Tether is a centralized company that takes dollars in the banking system, puts them in accounts, and then gives you a digital token that's exchangeable for a dollar in the banking system, Tether works because it's backed by dollars. Even though there's custody risk, even though there's regulatory risk, it still works because it's one thing backing the same thing. That's very stable.
1: So do you think that UST and something like this could be good enough for the crypto ecosystem that just needs to move funds around and keep it pegged to a certain specific value without any fluctuation?
0: Not at all. I think that this will fail in moments of volatility. And if we look at other algorithmic stablecoins that are older, such as MakerDAO, which is built on Ethereum, this system, the reserves in the MakerDAO ecosystem are largely built out of Tether, which is a stablecoin, which makes no sense. Why would you back an algorithmic stablecoin with more stablecoins? And the answer is because it's a way to create leverage. Leverage as in they can use it to borrow? Right. So if I take $100 of Tether, which is this centralized custodial US dollar stablecoin, but still pretty much works, and I put it into the MakerDAO contract, then I can maybe borrow maybe more than $100 of MakerDAO, or DAI, I think is their their dollar coin. Yep. And then I can go and speculate with this. So, all of these systems are enabling speculation, and speculation is volatile. And so, getting involved in these systems means exposing yourself to volatility.
1: So, I, I completely agree with everything you just said, except haven't we just gone through a period of extreme volatility since November? And DAI and UST have held. They've maintained, I mean, with, you know, some peaks and valleys here and there where they got down to maybe 98 cents for a few minutes, they've mostly held their peg to the one to the one U.S. dollar. So isn't that sort of a test by fire?
0: I think that broad financial markets have been trending downwards, but not in a particularly volatile fashion. But right now we have the world completely tearing itself apart around this whole issue of Russian energy. There seems to be a lot of stress in energy markets, and this likely will move to financial markets. And so I, I see volatility across the system in the future in a way that will make the past year look relatively stable. I see. So that will be the real test of how these things hold up in some real volatile
1: times, which that's sort of a uh, chilling, chilling thought when, I, when you say that the, what we've seen
0: so far has been stability. Also, fundamentally, there is unknown counterparty risk inside these DeFi ecosystems because this Terra Luna organization is buying bitcoin and they are an organized group their names are known what if they get regulated what if they get hit with a subpoena or a letter and they have to do something no one knows how they can affect this ecosystem because it's highly complicated and very hard to audit
1: yeah you know, and that's not to say that uh, it won't continue to see a big influx of money and uh, user adoption like that doesn't these these fundamentals one day, this is going to bite you real bad. These kinds of warnings don't seem to slow the adoption in crypto, right? That's why you see so many of these things that are just continuing to explode in users and market value.
0: True. People generally do not change their behavior until they're burned. I fully expect the speculation to continue until it doesn't. And whatever causes that, that's hard to predict. But <laughs> And we have... Our next subject is, what could cause that? So this is our touch of geopolitics. I'd like to bring your attention to a new newsletter from my favorite macroeconomist, Lynn Alton. She is a real genius and writes very well in a very accessible way about the broad financial system and the global economy. Yeah, this is great. And you can see that she's had a couple articles, one titled, What is Money Anyway?, I would say that when Lynn Alden writes an writes a article about what is money, you that's a red flag. You want to be preparing for volatility if she's questioning the monetary system itself.
1: And this latest one looks like it takes a big look at the impact on Russian commodities, the energy market. Yeah, and I also concur. Anything I've ever seen written by Lynn or anything I've listened to, because she's been on some podcasts too, has been really good stuff. Really makes you think kind of stuff.
0: Lynn is echoing a lot of things that we've been talking about, about the end of the Bretton Woods II system and the end of the petrodollar. She's in that camp as well. She sees that the international dollar standard has essentially broken and is now trans, transfiguring. Is that a Harry Potter term? Transmorphing? Transmogrifying? That's a Star Trek term. Transmogrifying is Star Trek? hmm I thought that was a Harry Potter spell.
1: Maybe, but I mean, they had the transmogrifier in the 1960s, Star Trek. So I feel like Star Trek got it first. I thought it was the transporter. Oh, they have a transporter too, yeah.
0: What does the transmogrifier do?
1: Uh, That is key to a lot of the fundamental Federation technology. So if a mimic-like race were happen to come across a piece of technology that had the transmogrifier in it, they could use that to unlock a lot of the secrets of the Federation technology and mimic many key things, like the tricorder and the phaser and the communicator.
0: Wait. This is the Gangster World episode. you got it. it.
1: Yes, nicely done. (laughs) That
0: that was peak Star Trek for me. That was a good that was a fun episode. Get a piece of the action. And then they kind of did that again in the next generation with the episode where they all end up in like a casino or a hotel built by aliens Mm -hmm. based on a romance novel or something. Yep. Yep. Yep.
1: Good times. Early early TNG was a lot of recycled TOS
0: episodes. And what's so weird about Star Trek which I think is kind of echoed in the new movies, is that the Federation is a totalitarian state. It's wild. Like, I realized that
1: later on as an adult because I didn't quite catch that as a kid, or maybe they just weren't... It wasn't quite like that as a kid. It was more utopian.
0: (laughs) That's changed. But then, yeah, the new movies are so brutal. You have Khan, and Khan works for the Federation as sort of like a black ops operative, and then he overthrows the Federation. and
1: They're running like assassins
0: uh, on Klingons, and just, <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, they are the Empire. It's wild. You find yourself sympathizing with the Romulans. Never thought that would happen. There's a
1: Star Trek series out there now where some, some group becomes the rebels that fight against the Federation. That's going to be the next streaming one.
0: Once. Was this the new series with... The older Captain? Picard? There was this Picard series. Yeah. It's going, no, no, not really. They could have gone that route, but they didn't. The Picard series, I had trouble with that. I kind of felt like, goodness, this is like hanging out with my grandfather. It not is. Not in the best way.
1: I mean, you know, I, loved, I loved my grandpa, So, but sometimes I feel like we should just let grandpa
0: rest. Right. My grandpa had a lot of great qualities solving interstellar political crises. Probably not one of them. One man stands alone in the galaxy. (laughs) I would have nominated my grandmother for that job.
1: (laughs) I'd love to see it, actually. Uh, As long as she isn't trying to
0: sell gas, natural gas for Bitcoin in Russia. Which is something a member of Russia's Duma threatened, suggested, implied they might be willing to do. So this is just a politician saying a thing. It doesn't mean anything necessarily, except. This was supposed to happen in three years, not two weeks after we mentioned it might happen.
1: Why three years? Why do
0: you think? So I thought that what would happen is that Russia would first start selling natural gas and oil for yuan, for Chinese currency, and gold. And then they'd discover that that kind of sucked. And then they'd eventually try other things and eventually Bitcoin. And they discovered that they loved using Bitcoin because it's so secure and easy to use.
1: I kind of feel like that's still the way it's going to go, because they said said, when it comes to China and Turkey,
0: who uh, don't pressure us, they said. (laughs) Hold on. Turkey is a friendly country? Yeah. 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 I thought Turkey was selling or giving those bargain basement attack drones to Ukrainians, and they turned out to be super effective. Right.
1: They were sold through Turkey. Yeah, that's true.
0: But, you know, a friend in need is a friend indeed. Right. You need a friend, and it's okay that he's selling... The baseball bat that's being used to hit you. Yep. So friends can uh, sell in their
1: own, buy and sell in their own currency, like the lira, or rubles, and Bitcoin, and unfriendly countries have to use rubles. So unfriendly countries, the ones they don't trust, have to use rubles, which I thought was interesting.
0: I thought that unfriendly countries would have to use Bitcoin because it's a hard currency.
1: That's what I thought too, but here's the quote. With Turkey, it can be the lira and rubles. So there can be a variety of currencies, and that's a standard practice. If they want bitcoins, we will trade in bitcoins.
0: Oh, I see. So basically, they consider gold or rubles to be hard currency, Mm -hmm. which is amusing because Uh the ruble is about as hard as butter on a hot day.
1: And you'd think if anybody would be rethinking gold right now, it would be Russia, too. (laughs) But, you know, they got a lot of it, so I can understand why they're all in they can kind of create a market for gold maybe basically is what i think exactly what they're thinking is they're going to be a market maker they say when we exchange with western countries they should pay in hard money and hard money is gold and must pay in currencies which are convenient for us you know i could actually see that is where i would think they would go to bitcoin right that seems to me for russia the best case scenario is if they could someone they don't trust someone maybe that it doesn't have a lot of gold it just seems like bitcoin is going to be a great option and It's not like countries are going to be rushing to get their hands on rubles right now.
0: And also, the Bitcoin market isn't really large enough to absorb the world energy market. So that's probably something that would need time to happen.
1: One thing, though, that the Bitcoin community seems to be wrapping their heads around right now is what if we started seeing the transition of pricing of Bitcoin from something like dollars into a commodity like oil? Do you see that being a transition? Do you think one day we'll stop denominating in U.S. dollars and we'll denominate something that's more universal to the world?
0: I imagine that we're moving into a world where commodities will be the quote-unquote base money. And so I think that's probably going to start happening more and more because if your energy producers are less interested in the dollar price of their commodity and they are more interested in, say, how much wheat you can give me for oil or how much gold you can give me for oil, the dollar price stops mattering, and you now start, sort of need to start worrying about the price in terms of what the energy exporter will accept in return for energy.
1: Like we said last week, the very beginning of the textbooks right now. Still a lot
0: more to figure out.
1: Keeping an eye on Russia and Russia's market over the next few years is going to be really fascinating.
0: And our last bit of Russia is, I just want to give a shout-out to Elvira. Elvira is the central banker of Russia, the head of the Russian central bank, and she doesn't get a lot of love in Russia or overseas because basically her boss in Russia blames everything that goes wrong on the people around him. So ordinary Russians have a, I understand, a pretty poor opinion of Elvira. I'm using her first name because her last name is completely unpronounceable. Do you want to try, Chris? Nebolina. I know that's wrong, but good Good try. (laughs) Yeah, definitely wrong. I just wanted to give her a shout out because Elvira is, I think by any metric, the best central banker of the past 50 years. She, you know, moved Russia from a high inflation dumpster fire economy into something pretty stable. She had great policy. She stabilized interest rates. She built up a foreign exchange reserve until it was frozen in the recent round of sanctions.
1: Yeah, she did a really good job just to get it all decimated in a couple of weeks. I, mean, I don't mean to laugh about it, but.
0: Right. It's, it's sort of like in the past couple of weeks, her life's work has been destroyed. And it the news is that she apparently tried to resign. And the counteroffer was, you get another five-year term. So if anyone can help uh, Elvira out, maybe get her a passport.
1: She had uh, a uh, look at setting up blue Wallet.
0: <laughs> right. She needs a blue wallet. Who knows? We're apparently thinking about a new central banker in the US, so maybe there's an opening for her. <laughs> that would be quite an upset.
1: That'll be the day, comrade. That'll be the day. Right.
0: <laughs> As we've said, what what kills Bitcoin is good policy. So Elvira, she might be the dollar's last hope.
1: <laughs> and I don't think they're gonna embrace that. So I think Bitcoin's
0: gonna be a okay. And while Bitcoin may be a-okay, Bitcoin users who have carelessly handed out their personal information to Bitcoin companies may not be okay.
1: Mm, Man, this is tricky. I have been burned by this. So HubSpot's one of those behind-the-scenes kind of companies, aren't they?
0: So the broader story is that a lot of companies use a technology called CRM, Customer Relationship Management. And I don't quite understand this, but I think it's basically When you get those annoying emails that you never respond to or open, these come from CRM companies that are working on behalf of some client.
1: Yeah, they got to maintain the relationship, right? They got to manage it. They are the customer relationship management team. And you can just run a software stack in your company or you could totally outsource to a company like
0: HubSpot. I think we could say that Bitcoin companies outsourcing user data is just a terrible idea because HubSpot has been hacked and apparently 30 Bitcoin companies, including I want to say, Unchained Capital. Yes, yeah, were yep. affected. Unchained has had other data breaches, I think. Yeah, which is such a a
1: shame because I like them as a company and I like the security precautions they're taking. But then these ancillary things around them keep screwing up, and it it keeps it keeps me skeptical. And the one one of the things that I appreciate about Unchained, and I would like to see them successful because I'd like to see more companies embrace this, is Unchained is big in multi-sig wallets so you can use Unchained for loans you can use Unchained for family savings and they build the entire thing around multi-sig so they don't have to take full custody of your coins to do it and not not enough places offer that
0: i'm going to we're going to talk about Unchained because even though they lost customer data they're doing this in a I think responsible way in the sense that When they take customer funds, they put it into a multi-sig. So they have one key, then a third party, like a lawyer, has one key, and then the customer has one key. Something like that. Yeah, it's
1: an arbiter basically that has the third key.
0: And this makes it a little harder for Unchained to just steal all your money or lose it because their systems got hacked. At worst, maybe they can lose one key. However, the real issue here is that companies holding customer data is a bad idea. It's fundamentally insecure and I have a link here to a, another podcast. Are we allowed to recommend other podcasts?
1: I mean, maybe we could make like a one-time exception, never to be broken ever again.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, we're really giving away the milk today. <laughs> yeah. So there's a podcast called Dark Net Diaries. It's, they should send us a boost. Oh, yeah. They're right? def- are they, they must be on podcasting 2.0. I mean, you would think
1: a, a fancy podcast like theirs, how could they be missing a trend that's going to be fundamental to saving
0: independent podcasts? Good point, Chris. I'm going to try to boost Darknet Diaries to let them know. I'm sure it must work. I mean, I haven't checked, but I could only imagine. Darknet Diaries is like This American Life, but about hacking.
1: Uh-huh, yeah, that's a good way to put it.
0: And they had a episode recently in which a young person who got into hacking via Rob Roblox. Roblox? Oh, or- yeah. Roblox? Roblox, yeah. And essentially just started doing terrible things to people to steal their personal information so they could sell it on darknet marketplaces and make tiny amounts of money.
1: Yeah, it's a a horrible dystopia.
0: And the company Roblox behind it is basically doing nothing at scale to stop this. And essentially what emerges listening to this story is that the modern surveillance capitalism structure of companies hoarding user data is fundamentally unsecure. This data cannot be secured. And it's just a nightmare, and you should never give data to companies because they will sell it, they will lose it, it will be used against you, undoubtedly. Like, there's no doubt in my mind, 100%. Personal data given to companies will never help you in the long term. And so one thing that this hacker reveals is that one of the most useful and valuable data leaks in recent history came from Ledger the Bitcoin hardware wallet manufacturer. Oh, really? Hmm, she's that scary. And so Ledger didn't lose any customer funds, but their Shopify account was hacked, and so they released a list of email addresses and physical addresses of people who bought Ledger's. Ah, okay, yeah. And this list has been used to extort Bitcoin from many, many people. And now we have more lists like that entering into the criminal marketplaces from this HubSpot data leak. Maybe these lists would be considered more valuable customers because they are
1: into crypto, perhaps they have crypto wallets, you know, like they're if you're somebody who's maybe putting together a phishing scheme to go after some people's crypto, pretend you're Coinbase or something like that. You buy a list like this, you create an email that looks like it's from Coinbase, you target it and send it ex- in you know exactly to these users. It's going to have a higher success rate than
0: just a blast spam approach. And you're going to be getting these emails for years. So, what I would recommend at this point Is whatever email account you used to register for these crypto companies, you want to change it. Just discontinue that email account, get another one, and then in the future consider using an email account masking technology so that you don't give your real email account to businesses when you sign up for their services. The one I use is called Simple Login, and I think that everyone should use something like that because there's just no need to give your real Email to everybody. And people who have an email signature that includes their full name and phone number and maybe address. I've seen address as well. Stop doing that. It's not necessary. Just include your first name. Best. Yeah. Signed your first name.
1: Also, I, I just want to say if you're using any of the webmail services out there, definitely take advantage of two-factor authentication. Because a lot of times when your accounts are getting taken over. The first line of defense is an email confirmation that comes into your inbox, and so they know that, and they understand that if they're going to get access to your account, they need to get access to your email first. So two-factor authentication, along with a unique password that you only use on your mail account, you don't use anywhere else, and maybe you rotate once a year, just that alone can save you so much trouble
0: in the long term. Right. There's going to be a recommendation for a password manager as well. I use KeePassXC, but I've been wanting to use Bitwarden. I think you're big on Bitwarden.
1: Yeah, I like Bitwarden a lot because it's got a good service you can pay for that I trust their implementation. They've got open source bits so you can audit, and they also allow you to self-host. And there's a couple of really nice
0: self-hosting options, including one now built into Umbral in the App Store that you can just add. Oh, I didn't know that. But what's what's interesting about Bitwarden is even though it's a company that is doing something for you, the way that they design the system is they cannot see anything about your password database other than how many entries you have in it, which maybe that seems too personal. For me, that seems like an okay trade-off to have a company implement something very securely for you.
1: Yeah, and I like that they offer uh, a service that, you can pay into a base rate and then they'll they'll handle all of the syncing across your phone, your desktop, your web browser and they don't they don't ha- like they don't have the encryption key on their server so you're safe that way and if you ever had a reason to move off and self-host it there's a very slick process to just export the database from their hosted service and import it to the self-hosted one and i you know just even having that escape hatch gives me a little bit of peace of mind
0: and i'm just going to Hint, a future episode, there is a privacy podcast host who I'm a big fan of who I've been talking with. And I think we can do an episode which will basically be a practical kind of first steps to privacy guide that will hopefully be useful to our users. And, you know, you can you can break it down. It's Privacy is a journey. So you can learn the first steps. That sounds like a great idea. All right. What about some Coinbase news? Coinbase, the evil empire.
1: You, uh, you start out the hero, and then you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Isn't that the uh, old Batman adage?
0: I think Coinbase has always been a bit villainous. They're generally on the wrong side of every fight in Bitcoin. They supported the Segwit2x hard fork, which was an attempt by companies like Coinbase to exert more power over the protocol. And it probably would have broken Bitcoin had it been implemented. But luckily, it was written so poorly that it would have killed itself after one or two blocks. And in the end, it wasn't even implemented because they discovered that the way Bitcoin provides security is through its decentralization. And so attempts to centralize it tend to fail because the decentralized node operators say, no, thank you. I think they also
1: brought a lot of market legitimacy to scam coins and alts that were just simply raw pump and dumps that Coinbase just decided, hey, you know what? Let's get a little piece of that action. And so they brought a bunch of currencies onto their exchange uh, that were basically Ethereum-based currencies. And they've made a ton of money from that. Uh, And I I feel like they kind of misled consumers by leveraging their their brand recognition.
0: Right. This is how Coinbase makes money. They have Bitcoin on the front page, and then they put some worthless altcoin right next to it and people click and buy the altcoin because they're like oh it's so cheap i could make like one day it might be worth the same amount as bitcoin and so i'll buy that and i'll be richer than jeff bezos yeah and i think
1: ultimately and this is this criticism is true for all exchanges is what i have observed over the years is that the deal is constantly changing um so for example on coinbase last week if i wanted to I could transfer $35,000 into my Coinbase account in a day. Now, even though nothing's changed, I don't have more or less funds in my Coinbase account. I haven't had any payment issues or anything like that. Now that limit is just arbitrarily $10,000 or $5,000. Again, way more than I'd actually use. Is that in or out of the account? Inbound. I don't know if they're limiting outbound. I mean, I'm not really looking to move these kinds of funds, so I didn't really investigate. Of course
0: they're limiting outbound.
1: Yeah, but I just don't like that the deal changes. You know, they just, and they, I'm sure it's not always their choice. I'm sure the banks are screwing them and whatnot, but it just shows you the nature of the business is such that they they can't offer you the same consistent
0: service that they promised originally. And this is just what happened with Coinbase. They've added Bitcoin address verification for withdrawals in three countries. And so what this means is when you make a withdrawal, they actually require that you provide the name and address of the holder of the wallet and confirm that, that that person owns the wallet by signing a message using the, crypt, the cryptography that makes up Bitcoin addresses.
1: I find this really alarming. So if you live in Canada, Singapore, or Japan, they will now be collecting that information when you try to withdraw. So if I were sending Bitcoin to you, do they want your physical address to be confirmed?
0: And in the context of all these data breaches, what they're doing is further endangering people because when this data is inevitably leaked via Coinbase or a third party they rely on or the financial regulator itself, because financial regulators get hacked as well, then the criminals are going to know exactly where you live and how much Bitcoin you received.
1: Once they set this precedent, you don't think the U.S. is going to ask for this? Every country is going to want this. 100%.
0: The negative news is that as a user of Coinbase, you can be hurt by this policy. At the same time, this is not to be unexpected. This is completely in keeping with increased KYC and control in the traditional financial system.
1: Yeah, I suppose so. But this seems like, I mean, I guess I was okay with identifying myself if I'm going into a market to buy speculative assets. I feel like that'd be the same barrier of entry I'd have if I wanted to buy stocks. But I, I, there is something about if I have a wallet on Coinbase that's that has funds sitting in it and I want to send them to someone else, one of the inherent benefits of cryptocurrency is that is an immediate, frictionless process. That is an inherent functionality of the technology. And now what we're doing is we're going to add a screen that comes up and says, okay, what's the name of the person? What's their country of residence? What's their address? Okay, we're going to verify that you certify this, and then we're going to log that in a database, and then if the authorities ever want to audit that, we've got your name right here on the dotted line that says that you confirmed all this, so you are responsible for it. That,
0: to me, is an escalation to a large degree. So two things here. One, cryptocurrency does not require identification to engage with it. So adding identification to cryptocurrency, there's no technological basis for it. And the only reason is to implement increased financial surveillance and control. Two, this increased KYC for withdrawals is consistent with a strategy I would implement if my goal was eventually to have the option of confiscating cryptocurrency from citizens. And I think that is frankly reasonable because I believe that adoption will probably go along the first they laugh at you, then they fight you, then they join you sort of spectrum. And I think we're in a mix of first they join you and they fight you right now because many large institutions are integrating Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies while simultaneously trying to add KYC. So I think that the traditional financial system is realizing that Bitcoin will exist and they can't kill it. But they want to turn it into just another financial asset. They don't want it to be this revolutionary technology that provides a lifeboat away from their burning system into a new system. So I think that these KYC events and these restrictions, they can be gotten around. There are ways to mitigate this. And it's not Bitcoin failing. This is the old system gasping at ways to preserve itself, in my view.
1: Absolutely is that. It absolutely is the old system saying, okay, where do we have leverage? Where do we have control? Where can we apply some of that and integrate this into our system? And what I know is going to happen, because it's been brought up now a couple of times in hearings in the Senate, is eventually these U.S.-based exchanges will be compelled to do something like this, although it may be at whatever the dollar—what they'll do is they'll just— pin it to the Bank Fraud Act that says any transaction over $10,000 must be reported. They'll just say that all exchanges must comply with that same act. And then whatever that act dictates the dollar amount is at is what the exchange will left to comply at. And today and probably tomorrow, that dollar amount is $10,000. So anytime you move more than $10,000 out of a U.S.-based exchange, this this reverse KYC process is probably going to come up. It just hasn't been enforced yet.
0: Yeah. And it's also amusing to think about because the IRS claims that Bitcoin is property, not money, because you can't tax monetary transactions because then, hey, yeah, you'd break money. But they're implementing travel rule restrictions that are consistent with monetary transfers. So, on the one hand, they're acknowledging that it's money. And on the other hand, they're saying it's not. So, there's a bit of uh, a yeah. double think here.
1: Yeah. 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 I think that's, where there's a few memes floating around that kind of hit on that. And they always, they always kind of make me laugh. So um, like we often say, now is the time to move. Now is the time to get these out of the exchange. Now is the time to look at doing something to reduce your exposure to KYC. Now is the time to get yourself a hardware wallet before they're in super high demand, right? Like we keep, that seems to be where we keep coming back to on the show. But if you and I both agree that all of the regulated exchanges are going to go this direction, then my immediate foregone conclusion is, if you got anything of value on these exchanges, get them off now, because otherwise you're going to have less and less control over it. And there are going to be more and more rules and processes in place when you finally get around to it.
0: Basically, the withdrawal limits are going to go down while the value of the cryptocurrency increases. So people who have $1,500 on Coinbase today in three years, hey, that might be $50,000, but the withdrawal limit has been reduced to $500 and now they need to take 10 or 10 weeks or something to get that money out as it's going up in value. So that would be a difficult situation in my opinion. I have literally witnessed that happen, you know? Uh, I had an old exchange.
1: It had some coins in there. They were worth nothing when I, you know, last checked, I went back in there and they were worth a couple thousand dollars. And I did nothing other than just leave them there accidentally. Uh, This was a little while ago, but, you know, there are periods of time where these currencies shoot up, too. And so it can be that way for a month or two, and maybe that's when you decide to move it. And then in two months' time, the currency crashes, and you wouldn't
0: have been caught in that trap. Good time for an ad read. Yeah. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the self-hosted show from Jupiter Broadcasting. Pew-pew! That was Chris pew-pewing. Yeah. I'm I'm a soundboard, too. Right. And he self-hosts that soundboard. Because with The Self-Hosted Show, you'll learn how to do all the stuff that happens in the cloud at home, possibly using Raspberry Pis, which are delicious. Just kidding. They're tiny little computers. You should check them out. They're lots of fun. So The Self-Hosted Show will teach you how to host your own media server, control IoT devices, and get endless excuses to buy more electronic toys. Check it out on selfhosted.show or search for The Self-Hosted Show in any of your podcast apps. Yeah, just had a new episode a couple of days ago. It was very controversial. I listened to it. (laughs) I just want to recommend one of my favorite Bitcoin tools. It's a website. It's hosted by a guy named Clark Moody, who's an early Bitcoiner. And it's called the Clark Moody Bitcoin Dashboard. It's a dashboard that shows you a lot of Bitcoin-related data, like the price. Everyone cares about the price. And it also includes data on hash rate, on the Lightning Network, on mining, check it out. It's very informative. It's a fun thing to glance over once a day if you're into that kind of thing.
1: It's a great snapshot, too, of where Bitcoin is at right now. Um, And they've got all kinds of interesting stats in here, including future supply stats, node stats, mining stats, difficulty stats, in just a really straightforward presentation. It's one of my favorite
0: Bitcoin-related websites. If you were going to testify before Congress, I would recommend having this on your phone so you could just sort of glance down and really seem like a very knowledgeable person about the state of Bitcoin. <laughs> That's why I keep it on my watch. It's a, it's a huge watch Chris has. It's like an iPad attached yeah. to his wrist. I basically
1: just strapped a tablet. Uh, it catches on things all day long, but i got to keep an eye on that price.
0: He also trips a lot. <laughs> How, you know what? How about a little feedback? What do you say? We had a listener write in, and they were interested in stories of lost Bitcoin. Basically, oh. this is a listener who's getting into Bitcoin and has heard that everyone loses Bitcoin. And this, this person doesn't want to lose Bitcoin. So I was wondering if we could share anecdotes, perhaps personal ones, perhaps stories about other people we know about how they lost Bitcoin and how you could avoid making that mistake.
1: He's he's basically asking to hear our pain. making He wants to hear us
0: squirm. This is definitely one of the most uncomfortable questions that could come in. I mean, you think about it. You have to acknowledge the fact that you made a
1: mistake that changed the course of your life. That's what he's asking us to talk about.
0: (laughs) Totally. Totally. I have a really bad one if you want me to start. Yeah, I do. Because mine is very painful. Okay. So first of all, This listener should have boosted us this question. So if they could go back and boost this question, sending a painful question with 500 satoshis, it really eases the pain quite a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I heard about Bitcoin multisig. And back in the day, I actually used Bitcoin with a Windows computer. And I knew it was bad because Windows computers are very prone to viruses and malware, the sort of thing that can kind of drain your Bitcoin wallet potentially. So. I read a guide about making a two of three multi-signature wallet in Electrum. And so for some background, a multi-signature wallet is a form of Bitcoin smart contract. And essentially, you put funds into this smart contract, and the contract is these funds can be spent if M of N signers agree. So if you have three hardware wallets, three seeds, two of the three seeds need to agree to spend the coins.
1: Yep. That's what I do with my kids' Bitcoin that I've given them to, you know, give them a little bit of Bitcoin early on is multisig, So that way they can't accidentally spend it on
0: something maybe because their computer gets compromised. Right. So Chris is another signer in that. So even if his son is convinced to send Bitcoin because they'll send you back 10 Bitcoin, not going to happen, by the way, Chris has to review that transaction and ask his son, OK, what's going on here before he'll approve the transaction. And so it gives a little safety. Yep. Or, you know,
1: send us these Bitcoin and we'll give you 50,000 Robux. That would probably be his scam.
0: Essentially, Bitcoin multisig has improved a lot, but it hadn't when I tried to do this. So I created three separate seeds. So three separate seed phrases, three separate private keys, and then I combined them in, in Electrum. And I tested this with a little Bitcoin. I sent a little Bitcoin in. I sent a little Bitcoin out. And I thought, okay. So then I sent in a lot of Bitcoin. And it was fine. You know, uh, you know, I, I just had the wallet on my computer. But then something happened. That computer, um, the hard drive died. But what? what are the chances? But I wasn't worried because I thought, okay, I've got the three seeds. I can just recreate this wallet. Okay. But here's the problem. I built the wallet in Electrum. And Electrum is an older Bitcoin wallet. It's got a lot of rough edges. You can chop your own head off using Electrum if you don't document everything and are very careful. And Electrum used some weird derivation path. And I've been looking for those Bitcoin for years now. You know, sometimes when I build up some optimism, I give it a go try to recombine the seed. And I don't know where the problem is. Like, did I write down the seed wrong? One of the seeds wrong? Because if I got one word in the seed wrong, it's a whole different wallet. So I made a mistake somewhere in there. And there's a lot of places that the mistake could be. And basically, those Bitcoin are never coming back. Everyone who has Bitcoin today, you're welcome. I donated some purchasing power to the rest of you by destroying those coins. And yeah, and you know, basically... I try not to think about the implications of this because, you know, it wasn't, I mean, it was not a small amount of money back then, but today, I mean, oh my God. Oh my God. Yep. 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 Oh, mine's even dumber than that. Okay. (sighs) I hate to say. But the thing is, how do you avoid doing this? Yeah. It's actually relatively simple. So what you do is you practice with $10 of Bitcoin. Just take a number, say $10, $20. When you have a new wallet, you create the wallet. You send $10 in. You received it, good. Now send $5 out. You received it in, in your old wallet, good. Now you've got $5 in that wallet. Delete the wallet file. Just delete it. Or, I mean, it maybe if you want to be less reckless, try to recreate the wallet file on another computer. If you can re- recreate that wallet file, and you can see the $5 and the the transactions, good, you did it right. It's that simple. And you can do that for a single SIG, for a multi-SIG. It's about testing. You want to test it, and you want to, like, kind of write down what you're doing as you're doing it. If things pop up on the screen, a derivation path, you'll learn what that is eventually. You know, write that down, too, just to be safe. Small amounts, because you can send small bits of sats. It doesn't need to be
1: large amounts of Bitcoin. And that's where I went wrong as well. That's the fundamental flaw that I made. So to go back in time, nearly 12 years, uh, I was originally, I could mine Bitcoin on the CPU of an old MacBook. That's how low the hash rate was, right? And so having Bitcoin was a solved problem because I could basically create Bitcoin when I needed it within a few days. And so um, there was probably a point in time when I had probably over 120 Bitcoin. Obviously, I don't have that now. So, But I also back then, we were really adamant about spending the Bitcoin. So if I mined some Bitcoin, I would spend the Bitcoin to buy GPU hardware and stuff like that. But I was at the same time covering the development of Bitcoin on my TechSnap podcast back then in the Bitcoin Blaster segment. And we had somebody write in and ask, what? You, you, you look skeptical. Bitcoin Blaster? Catchy name. I like it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> pew, yeah. pew, pew. Is yeah. that where this comes from? Mm, yeah, of course. Uh, you know, working formula. But we had a listener write in and say, hey, you know, how do you store your Bitcoin? I've looked at these options. And I thought, you know, this is something I'm going to look into because clearly this is going to be a very common question. And there's school of thought that you just use the crappy Bitcoin core software.
0: Or you could try one of these up-and-coming online wallets. Which is not crappy software. Bitcoin Core is a great piece of software. (laughs) At the same time, the wallet is pretty bare bones, and it's a hot wallet on your computer, so it's maybe not ideal anymore.
1: Right. And the thing to remember back then, too, is the wallet was also doing the mining initially, so it was like you had everything in one point of failure. It was just really kind of uncomfortable.
0: We call that a monolithic piece of software. Yeah. Big, complicated piece of software doing a lot of things. Not so good for reliability.
1: So online wallets were a new idea. And I thought, let's see what this is like, and I'll try it out. And I wanted to try using it as a way to also spend the Bitcoin, you know, see if you could use it to spend from there. And um, can, you had, de- can you describe what an online wallet is? So they were essentially positioning themselves as a web Bitcoin bank account. Uh, you'd have a savings account and a checking account, and you could have the checking account linked to a web browser extension. And then you could go to like Newegg and you could buy a graphics card using their wallet system, right? It would connect it all the pieces for you.
0: So it was fully custodial. You sent Bitcoin yes. to someone else, and then they let you spend it via their interface.
1: Right. And it was one of the very, very, very first ones to do this. So the concept was still new, the debate was still raging. So I thought, I'm going to dive in and I'm going to test this, and I'm going to at least try to understand what the benefits are before I. You know, have a full take on it. And so for about two weeks, I put my Bitcoin, not all of my Bitcoin, but I put, put about 70 Bitcoin on this wallet. Wow. And within the second week, right before I finished the review, the wallet was hacked. All of the wallets were hacked. And 60 of my 70 Bitcoin were stolen, which today would be $2.6 million. Which in November, during the peak of Bitcoin, would have been $4.1 million. And so I try not to think about that. I can see you haven't been thinking about it. (laughs) Um, But it is, you know, it sticks with me. Like, I was just trying this thing for two weeks, and that happened to be when it got hacked. And it really drove home why, uh, you know, I'm really not comfortable with these custodial services that actually keep the Bitcoin. Because the way it worked out, from my understanding, from my vague recollection, was they just basically pooled all the Bitcoin together like it was their own Bitcoin. They
0: just all had it in one wallet and behind the scenes. And that one wallet was basically taken. Because you can't see what a company is doing behind the scenes. And Mt. Gox was another famous Bitcoin exchange that got hacked.
1: I also lost some Bitcoin in the Mt. Gox thing. I got some of it
0: back on that one. I know a lot of people who lost Bitcoin in Mt. Gox. And essentially, we learn by touching the stove. So Chris and I learned. Two things. One, if you're going self custody, which you should, you need to test it. You need to be slow and careful. Ask your friends, ask your Bitcoin dad. We can help you with this. But just don't go custodial because, you know, in the past, the, the threat from custodial was being hacked. And the hacking, which whether it's the company hacking itself and stealing the coins or an external attacker, that risk remains and will always remain. But now we have an additional risk, which is regulatory which is government seizure or some restriction on those Bitcoin that are in a regulated, regulated custodian. You want to go self-custody, but you want to do it very carefully. And you also don't want to burn yourself because that can turn this into an emotional thing that makes it hard to jump on the opportunity and get excited about a new technology.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I have a friend who was also very early to Bitcoin, and he made an incredible trade. He put $5,000 into Bitcoin in 2013, turned it into $15,000, cashed out. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But what would that be worth today? Yeah. That's tough. Like, I mean, it, that's, that's your own private jet territory. Yeah.
1: That's a, it's hard. It's, uh, investing's hard. But yeah, I, I think the, the core message to take away is test a wallet, test send before you, tr- before you move your coins out of an exchange. Do a a small test transaction to your wallet, make sure it arrives, gets confirmed, make sure you got all the addresses right. Also, a lot of these exchanges offer whitelist services where you can address book your custodial wallet, the one that you have sovereign control over, you can address book that in the exchange and then tell the exchange to only allow transfers to the whitelisted addresses and that's a layer of security you can also add but the nice thing there is assuming your address doesn't ever change or you don't generate a new one then it's just a drop down in the like Coinbase will do this or FTX will do this so you're just selecting your destination in a drop down you're not entering in the address every time fresh
0: there's some trade offs there yeah. but i think that's reasonable if you're using a custodial exchange
1: if you're moving off an exchange and they for example sometimes will limit the amount you can send at a time it's nice to not mess that part up and use a whitelist but Everybody, you have to you have to really weigh all that kind of stuff.
0: It's sort of situational. The thing is, we're telling everyone, "Don't trade, don't try to be a genius." Of course, people are going to try and do that. So, what I would say is, another thing is that if you're going to sell assets, I would recommend. And I I worry that this veers into financial advice. I don't mean it that way. I just mean that if you think about buying and selling things. Why do you always have to sell everything? Like, why click sell all when you're buying and selling stocks? Like, maybe just sell 90% if you're going to sell and hold on to the rest because who knows what will happen to it. So I think that one bit of general advice around buying and selling assets is I don't think it ever makes sense to have a zero position in anything you once held a position in. Maybe you reduce your position a lot, but you don't sell it all. That seems very primitive in terms of thinking about finance. Yeah, you're, you're not hedging. You got to hedge a little bit. Sure. You don't know what's going to happen. If you once believed in this thing, maybe there's still some value there. I don't know.
1: I mean, like my my opinion on it, and it is just opinion, but my opinion is just simply, even if you're kind of skeptical on Bitcoin, wouldn't it make sense to have a small position just in case?
0: If you're 100% against and Chris and the Bitcoin dad are 100% for, then maybe your correct allocation is, what, 30%? Maybe, maybe it's 5%, 10%. Maybe it's, I mean, if if you're listening to us, it's probably more like 80%, but no. <laughs> if you're listening to us, you're probably already into Bitcoin. So do we have time for a Bitcoin FUD or Bitcoin, fundamental mm. Bitcoin question? Oh yeah, lean on me. Okay. What do you got? Here's a question that comes up a lot. You have someone who's never bought Bitcoin, never never really, they've heard about it, but they're sort of skeptical and they say, how can Bitcoin have value without Something backing it. I, yeah, I just heard Jerome Powell say that in a testimony. He said, you know, cryptocurrencies aren't backed by anything. That's really interesting that Jerome would say that. What exactly does he think the US dollar is backed by? His good word. Is that worth $40 trillion? I I'm not sure. I don't think it is. No. Because <laughs> Jerome seems to be a bit of a flip flopper. So, yeah, he does. Yeah. Maybe he should talk to Elvira.
1: I've definitely heard this before, like uh, Bitcoin's a bubble. It's going to pop eventually. This is sort of the Schiff argument. You know, it's inevitably going to crash down simply because there's nothing behind it, nothing backing it.
0: And this is Schiff who says that the amazing thing about gold is that he's got these gold cufflinks and he's going to jump into like a a cryo capsule and wake up in 400 years. And he's going to restart his life because he's got these gold cufflinks and he'll sell them to like... A semiconductor fab because they need gold for their semiconductor. Of course, I think less than four percent of gold's yearly demand is manufacturing processes. Yeah, I was surprised when I saw that. It's a pretty stupid argument, I think. Yeah,
1: objectively, I mean, it's manufacturing is a very small percent. I think it's under five percent, and then another small usage of it is jewelry, which I also thought would be a lot larger. But I guess when you look at the total supply of gold, it's only a small percent as well.
0: Right. It's basically a financial asset. And then the physical side of gold has almost become a hindrance to its usefulness as a financial asset.
1: That is, I think, what you just touched on, a concept that I don't think most people have wrapped their heads around yet. Because people think that gold derives its value from its industrial use, and people think it drives its value from jewelry use. But the actual reality is, is that It detracts from gold's overall value as a
0: financial backing asset. Right. It's sort of noise in the market. It's almost better for money to just be money. There's a story of prisoners of war in a German POW camp during World War II. And these soldiers started using cigarettes as money. And essentially, the reason that cigarettes functioned well as money was they would receive these care packages from the red cross and there would be cigarettes in them because back then the red cross gave people cigarettes go figure but because you like to smoke cigarettes that gave the, there was demand there was sort of a demand for this commodity and there was enough of them for the cigarettes to be sort of a useful monetary good because you could pay trade a pack of cigarettes for maybe changing your work duty or something or one cigarette for some candy or a, a bit of a snack or something but then this marketplace fell apart because the care packages stopped and they smoked all the cigarettes or or maybe there were too many cigarettes at one point so essentially the physical qualities of the cigarettes Kind of overwhelmed the monetary usefulness eventually, and the cigarette marketplace fell apart. It's an interesting bit of economic history. I'll try and find it and put it in the in the show notes.
1: Hmm. And so Bitcoin is actually, when people say it's not backed by anything, it's not backed by an industrial use, it's not backed by uh, art use. That actually could be a benefit because then it's just a pure asset to be used for currency to be used as money.
0: Right at the end of the day, though. What is the real demand for Bitcoin? It's as money. It's because people like Chris and I think it's useful as money. And you might say, well, that's crazy. It's just it's just a scam. Well, so is every other money. So the question I would say is, why do we think it's useful? And I think that every week we outline concrete reasons why it's very useful and better money than other things that exist. So you have to make up your own decision about this. But if you're listening to this podcast, maybe you're sympathetic to our argument.
1: Yeah. And for me, I, a lot of the things that give Bitcoin value is sort of the inherent aspects of Bitcoin. I, obviously, I think scarcity play a psychological aspect in what me as a human, what, what makes me think something is valuable is if I know it's scarce and I know I can prove it is scarce and I know that everybody else on the system agrees on all of those same base rules. Yes, that is the one you have. Yes, it is scarce. It is essentially a form of digital property. It's a form of digital scarcity. And that makes sense to my brain. That seems like a valuable thing. And it is a form of a digital asset of digital scarcity that I can transmit over a communications channel. And that to me also has inherent value. So the utility of Bitcoin brings its inherent value in my mind.
0: I think I agree with all of that. Actually, Satoshi had an early example of what Bitcoin is. And he said, imagine that there is this colorless metal. It has no industrial usage, but it's physical. And the power of this metal is that I can call you on the phone and I can push the metal into the microphone and the phone and it comes out the, the other end on your side. Would this not be... Incredibly useful to have a thing we could transfer physically via communications channels. Well, Bitcoin does exactly that, except it has additional properties because of its programmability. Right. It's also the settlement layer. It's not just the
1: exchange of value, but it's also the decentralized settlement layer that is confirming the transactions and keeping the ledger secure.
0: Right. So basically, because I can send you this colorless metal via the phone. There's not a central intermediary who can send out a message and say, "Okay, turn like the phone lines will now reject all metal transfers." You can always do this peer to peer essentially with right. Bitcoin.
1: And AT&T can't prevent you from sending metal to Verizon customers. There's not a Verizon metal and an AT&T metal. It's all an open network with an open protocol that everybody can communicate on even if they're different vendors, different hardware etc, cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: And there's because it's so efficient to have an open standard, there's not an incentive to break it, even though you think there might be. So our story about Coinbase requiring more KYC, that can seem like an attack on Bitcoin, and I would disagree. That's a legacy system thing where the legacy system attacks its own users. An attack on Bitcoin would be a new version of Bitcoin sponsored by some government where the transaction doesn't confirm unless it connects with the government's KYC server. However, this doesn't quite work because now if we moved into a world of permissioned Bitcoin, who gets to be the KYC server? You'd have all these forks where there'd be the Russian version of Bitcoin, the American version of Bitcoin, the European version of Bitcoin, it, it, and they would all fail. The original Bitcoin would remain and people would use that.
1: Yeah, it's already got a network effect. I, as a user, would not opt into any of these worser Bitcoins, so I would not be participating in that network.
0: I might try to sell the worst Bitcoin version to buy original Bitcoin, maybe, (laughs) (laughs) which is, I think, what a lot of people did with the (laughs) the fork wars with Bitcoin cash.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's so the, the fact that the Bitcoin protocol has remained, that the node network is so decentralized and that it is the settlement layer. These all provide utility and value that is inherent to Bitcoin. And then ultimately it all accumulates in the fact that we have agreed that this is a scarce item that we can send to each other and we can verify that you've sent it and we can verify that you have received it. That inherent utility is valuable and it is an inherent problem that was created with the internet. The moment we all got online and we all started communicating and exchanging money, we created this problem. We need something that is currency
0: for the internet age. That's like cash. Yeah, it's like gold or cash. And we thought for a while until Bitcoin that we had solved that with credit cards. But then we discovered that actually your credit card company doesn't want you to send money if it's not for an approved purpose. And you can't send money across national borders, which doesn't work with the Internet because the Internet is inherently international.
1: And we also learned that they have helped facilitate an entire data broker market where they're buying and selling information and putting together profiles on individuals down to the individual level. And there is now an entire surveillance cap industrial network. Like it's it's gotten really
0: bad. And Bitcoin solves that too. Agreed. Seems like a good place to end maybe. Yeah. So there's a little fundamental for you. <laughs> sure. This show is just built on digressions. And we'll keep on doing it until someone boosts us and tells us to focus. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on saturday march 26 2022 i've been your bitcoin dad and i'm here with chris
1: i'll be me i'll still be me next week too